given us in his word. Exodus chapter 17, and I'm going to begin reading from verse 8. Exodus 17, verse 8, all the way through to verse 16. Thank you for following with me. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Thankful for the Lord's word this morning. Will you pray with me one last time? Our Father, we have much to consider this morning, much to do, much to participate in, much to plan for the future. Right now, we want to hear from you. We want to consider what it is that you said. Why even here today we see this, this particular story was intentionally memorialized. We want to submit our hearts to you now and ask for your spirit, not just in the words that we hear, but in the transference of them to our thoughts and that you might change our hearts by them. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, the title this morning, as we are actually in our last Sunday before Easter, so this will be the last time we have a sermon entitled, Because He Died. But the title this week is, Because He Died, We Rally Under His Banner. This is what's going on in Exodus chapter 17. So if you don't know what a rally is, or what it means to rally, rather, literally it means to come together to renew an effort, to come together to renew an effort. And this seems appropriate as we take some time after our service to both share in communion before the Lord together, but then also share in saying goodbye to a couple families that have been a, a foundational part of what Crosspoint's life is. Um, it's an important time for us to rally together under the banner of who the Lord is because it's very easy for us to rally under other banners, isn't it? You think about what a banner is, you think about a flag perhaps that's standing on a pole and, and troops coming underneath it and saying this is, this is ground that we've taken and whatever the battle might be. What are the banners that we rally under? Of course we want to say our, our one and only true banner is Christ. But there may be other things that we look to for victory, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, whatever that might be. So today, my hope is that this, looking at the word today, would bring an encouragement to us and to our friends to find these things in 
our local community here and that as we send out the Sherricks and the Dillers, we send them out with tears, maybe with sadness in our hearts, but with hope and with gladness that though we may not see each other every Sunday morning as we're used to anymore, we're going, or they're going out to do the same thing somewhere else. And that on a Sunday morning, we might even remember that our loved ones who are uh, perhaps even others be beyond just the Sherricks and the Dillers that have uh, joined other churches that you remember and you miss, oh, I used to worship with them. That was, so, that was a sweet memory. Um, that that might stir in our hearts the reality that we don't join under the banner of Cross Point Community Church as if that title is Christ, right? It, this is... Our, the name of our local body, our small community, our microcosm theologians call it a, a small sample of something much larger. And even this morning, we were talking about the hope that we have in one day worshiping together perfectly in Christ's kingdom. You know, in thinking about rallying, the first thing that came to my mind as, as far as illustrations go is that very iconic image from World War II at Iwo Jima. Anybody already kind of thinking of what I'm thinking here, right? The raising of the flag with, um, oh boy, I wrote down how many soldiers it was. Who knows? Does anybody know how many soldiers? How many? I think there were seven. Seven of them? Yeah. So there's a handful of guys, and they're all scrambling to raise the flag, right? It's a very inspiring picture, isn't it? You know, it would have been a great thing to have on the PowerPoint today, right? But, I, you know, imaginations are helpful, so use your imagination today if you can remember it. Um, but what is it that makes that picture so inspiring? Is it the flag, the red, white, and blue waving in the air and all that that stands for? Or are your eyes drawn more towards the individuals who are working together to put that up and you're seeing the effort that's being put in, the seriousness of what they are testifying to as soldiers, uh, as Marines, that is, of the United States? It's a powerful image for sure. And I think that's something of what we see in Exodus chapter 17. So as far as walking through the passage today, um, I want you to consider three words as we go through this, because uh, again, our, our title is because Christ died because of the victory he won, we rally under his banner and his plan involves his church rallying under his banner according to his power, trusting in his power to fulfill his purpose. And so those three words are what um, I hope stick out as we go through this passage. First, the plan for the battle. Secondly, the power for the battle. And then lastly, the purpose of the battle. Make sense? Everybody with me? That's how we're going to walk through this today. So in these first uh, three verses here, 8, 9, and 10, we see very clearly the plan for the battle. And, and we see already the conflict happening here in, in the very beginning of verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel. Well, who is Amalek? Amalek is a nation of people, the descendants of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob, right? So Esau and Jacob have a good relationship, right? And they always have. And their descendants kept that going, didn't they? No, they didn't. Of course, there's already conflict that you can see here in this passage. But reading back through Genesis, you can see where that conflict comes. And Amalek is here at Rephidim, not in not in, in a way of, of saying like, hey, what are you guys doing here as if they're gonna, Israel's going to set up camp and stick around? They're traveling through. But Amalek, for some reason, as a nation, had decided we need to go after Israel right now. And this is an interesting thing because it is very much in line with what the descendants of Amalek uh, were all about, was opposing God's people. Now, 
in that, we have this direct attack from Amalek. But before that, you have such an incredible passage in chapter 17 of water coming from a rock. Do you remember this story? Israel is grumbling and complaining. It says that they were actually quarreling with Moses. Moses says that in your quarreling, you have decided to test God, which is a terrible thing to do. And in that moment, God is gracious to them. They're saying, oh, why did you bring us out here out of Egypt just so that we could die here? You're going to let us die of thirst, Lord. What's wrong with you? Of course, Moses says, why are you testing God? Moses hits a rock, and water comes from the rock, and the Lord provides for his people. As we think about rallying under the banner of Christ's victory and considering what banners we are tempted to rally underneath, what kind of things we are hoping for. The reason why we may not immediately say, like, no, Christ is my all in all, and I I trust him. He is my blessed assurance. He is my sure foundation. He is the victor in the battle. When we feel the weight of our temporary needs, it brings about things like quarreling and even testing God, doesn't it? We start to argue amongst ourselves. We argue about what is true. We, we, we struggle with understanding what our priorities ought to be. And we live as if the God who sent his son to die on a cross to pay the ultimate price for us to be his is not going to provide all the subsequent things that we need beyond that. God shows in chapter 17 in the beginning here that he has every intention of providing all things that we need to life and godliness. But their response is, did God really save us from Egypt or did he just bring us out here to die? Do you ever feel the weight of that in your Christian life? Boy, I'm so thankful that Jesus died for me, but man, this Christian life is really hard. And some days I just want to totally give up. I want to find some other banner to rally underneath. And there's plenty of other people that are leading to all sorts of different banners, all sorts of other places to trust, all different places where I might find water, where I might find food, where I might find something to satisfy my temporary needs here. This is the conflict. And this is what got Israel into trouble in the first place. Because why did Amalek come? We don't really get that exactly. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that explains that when Amalek did come, they attacked from behind and they attacked those that were lagging behind and those that were weak. And so in this moment where Israel's traveling through from Egypt and going towards the promised land, and interestingly enough, it even says that in chapter 13 of Exodus that when they came out, they came out ready for battle. But when the first battle came in, are they ready for it? No. They had people lagging behind. They had people who were weak and and, and lagging behind for natural and understandable reasons. Should they have let that happen? I mean, where's the wise place to put the weakest people? Where do you put the children in, uh, uh, you know, thousands of people that are, are traveling through the desert? Where do you put the children? Do you put them at the back and say, hey, just try to keep up, kids? This is apparently what they did. They ought to have put those that were in most need in the center where they were protected. But why didn't they do that? Quarreling and testing. Looking at other things. Unfaithful to the Lord's already presented his faithfulness. For us, it's easy perhaps to rally over our own sense of lack. You know that phrase, misery loves company. What's the first thing you want to do when you feel miserable? It's probably to recoil into yourself, right? But as soon as you find out that somebody else might be somewhat miserable as well, 
don't you just feel a longing sometimes to just pour out your problems too and say, let's commiserate together and just wallow in our own sorrow? It's one of humanity's favorite things to do. I mean, it's something, think about your conversations with people that you work with, if you're fortunate enough to work with people. <laughs> During COVID especially, it's funny. But, you know, as you, maybe you're coming back to work and after a long time and you're coming together, what's the first thing you're going to say? Hey, let me tell you all the wonderful things that happened while I was working from home. Or this. No, you're going to talk about, man, it was, it was hard to do this, and, and I hated being on Zoom so much, and, and this was so difficult, and boy, I couldn't get into a good rhythm. All the things that we, that we have misery over are the things that we want to talk about first. And so we rally under the banner of our own misery rather than the banner of Christ's victory. We rally under other things in positive senses too. Perhaps we rally politically. We might rally over our hobbies we might rally together um, in certain communities because we live in certain areas. Maybe there's other things that you choose to say, this defines the community that I am most attached to. But as Crosspoint Community Church, we ought to be, like the rest of the global church, a community around Christ as our banner and nothing else. Well, Amalek believes that Israel is apparently coming to bring them harm or to take something from them. And so they're caught off guard. They've been attacked. And the plan is very clear, Josh, Moses says to Joshua in verse 9. Choose for us men. Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Did you catch that he said tomorrow? I have no idea what to do with that, people. Because I caught that, of course, later on in the week, and I thought... Why tomorrow, right? Does it maybe bring to mind what Jesus did when he heard that Lazarus had died? What's the first thing that it says after that? Jesus heard that Lazarus died, so he stuck around a little bit longer before coming back to him. Moses says, go battle them now. I mean, Amalek isn't saying, hey, guys, just want to give you a heads up. We're going to be attacking you in about uh, 20 minutes or so. So, just get No, that's not how battles go, right? But Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. You know, if, if nothing else, we can certainly say that in God's plan, there is a need for us to be patient. That while we stand under that flag and we are trying to put it up like the Marines at Iwo Jima in World War II, it may not immediately bring a victory. You still need to rally the troops to that hill. You still need to advance. You still need to move forward. And certainly there is a required patience with that. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. What is it that Moses is holding? The staff of God. It is the picture of God's power. What has this staff done most recently that was most impacting? The crossing of the Red Sea, right? In Exodus 14, 14, one of my favorite passages in that whole book, Moses says to the people, stop grumbling Today the Lord is going to save you, and you have only to what? Does anybody know? To stay silent. To be quiet. Close your mouths and listen and watch and see the salvation of God. And so Moses stands there. He lifts up his staff. I wonder if Moses himself even knew what was going on. God didn't say, hey, when you hold up the staff, it's going to be really cool, so get ready. Water's going to put... He doesn't say that. He just says, go and hold up the staff that I gave you, right? And, and so I wonder, you know, is Moses sitting there going, what's going to happen? 
It's, pretty, it's an interesting moment, right? But they've seen this happen already. They've seen that as Egypt was pursuing them to bring them back into slavery that they'd been saved from, God saved them from their enemies. And so we might expect him to do the same thing again, but there's this interesting new element to the plan. And that is, you, Joshua, gather men and go fight Amalek. Do you wonder what Joshua was thinking in this moment? Because he has been a slave his entire life in Egypt. I imagine he doesn't have a lot of military experience. The battles he's been a part of have been the battles of the Lord thus far. And now he's supposed to lead people in attacking Amalek. Joshua, I mean, what do you think of when you think of Joshua? You think of Joshua 1.9, right? Be what? Strong and courageous, right? And so Joshua's got to be a courageous guy. We haven't gotten that wonderful verse yet in Exodus, but Joshua obviously does what Moses told him to do, but can you imagine a little bit of his, his hesitancy with this? Should, uh, is this really what you want us to do? I thought God was going to fight for us. I thought that the Lord was our banner. I thought that we were his people. And, and yeah, you're telling us to come together, but Moses, why are you going up to the top of the hill? Because remember, Moses was basically like the presence of God in the eyes of Israel. He wasn't. He was not the manifest. He was a man just like anybody else. But to Israel's eyes, he was, if they didn't have Moses, what did they have? So the plan is different. It's going to take an active engagement with the enemy. Now, it's important for us, I think, often to remind ourselves of Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we might think, okay, so the first thing I notice here is that we're not supposed to physically fight people as Christians, right? Got it. And we think that because there's no physical or, or uh, temporal element to this real battle that's going on, that that must make things easier. But did you hear the list of foes against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places? That's your battlefield. I think I'll take Amalek over that. Yeah? A little more straightforward, a little bit simpler. I understand you know, the physical realm far more than this kind of stuff. But this is the battle that we are in. And the Bible doesn't tell us that that battle goes on and off. Amalek attacks when Amalek attacks. And so the spiritual warfare that the church endures and is engaged in doesn't turn off. It doesn't even turn off when you're in the pews on Sunday morning, when you think you're safe. It is in the times where we perhaps think that we are the safest and everything is all right, that we are perhaps in the most danger. Pippin in The Lord of the Rings says, the closer we are to danger, the farther we are from harm. I just don't know if that's true. Danger is very real. And the harm may not seem so bad when we consider our own sin because what is this spiritual warfare? What is it that these cosmic powers and this present darkness and spiritual forces want us to do? They want us to separate. They want us to ignore the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. And they want to lead us into sin. They want us not to prioritize the coming together of the saints, but rather they want us out by ourselves where we are easy targets. So we must rally. We must come under the banner of Christ where we find our only safe place. We must 
acknowledge where our weaknesses are individually. Where are you at your most susceptible to sin? Where, when are the times where you are the most able to find yourself angry or tempted? Or, or where are the, what are those moments? You know them, brothers and sisters, because you know what that experience is. And you can say it's Monday morning, it's Tuesday afternoon, it's, it's these times when these circumstances hit that I realize that I am not rallying under Christ, but rallying somewhere else. Israel was too busy quarreling to wise up and protect the weak. Didn't consider where their weaknesses were, and then they were attacked. What purpose might God have in this attack? Why is it that Amalek comes in? They have nothing to do with what's going on with Israel. They should have stayed well away. Because they have this family lineage, they should even know something of who Israel is. They should even know that, oh, Israel was our, our, our ancestor's brother, and he had the promise, and et cetera, et cetera. We're going to leave them alone, particularly if they're coming up out of Egypt, particularly if they have been freed from slavery. God must be doing something. No, Amalek attacks them. And what is it that God's purpose is in this? Could it be correction? Could it be discipline that he's bringing on his people? Could he be bringing discipline into our lives? What might God's purpose for discipline be? This is part of the plan, too. The plan is why. If you're a soldier that's meant to rally at a certain hill with other soldiers to raise up a flag and to fight a battle, you've got to know why you're doing it. Does the Lord have a purpose in the struggle that you're in? Could he be using discipline to make you more like Christ, more like the one you are called to follow? Joshua was a rookie general. Moses is, in his own mind, all alone. You see that in chapter 18 next. The first thing his father-in-law says to him, really, in conversation is, you've got a problem, Moses. You act like you're the head honcho and that you have to do everything. You can't do that. You need to delegate a little bit. It's a very cool passage in chapter 18. You should read it later on today. But then there's these other guys, Aaron and Hur, that went up to the top of the hill. And they're going to be very essential to this plan. Because you already saw in this, this is a pretty straightforward picture, straightforward story, um, what's going on. Right? Moses has his hands up with the staff of God, and are they winning or losing when his hands are up? They're winning. And then his hands go down and they're losing. Yeah. Okay, you get it. Let's pray and we'll go home. Just kidding. But, I mean, it's pretty straightforward what the battle plan is. And Aaron and her come in. And you wonder, why did Moses bring him them in the first place? Apparently Moses knew what he was going to do, and apparently Moses knew something of his own weakness. Maybe God had a conversation with Moses, and he said, hey, listen, just like at the Red Sea, okay, wink. And then Moses says, I got you. I'll get the staff, I'll go up to the top of the hill, do this thing, and then the battle will be over. I think God didn't tell him that, because I think that's why he brought Aaron and her. Because I think he knew, he's like, all right, staff plus hands and air equals victory, we'll do that. But how long will it take? This battle could go on for a while. I might need somebody to come and help me do this. And that's where Aaron and her come in. Because we, they wouldn't have been able to rally together if the banner wouldn't stay up. If there wasn't still that access to the Lord, if that access was gone, victory was lost. So what is the power of the battle? Well, it's very clear. When Moses grows weary, he realizes, he doesn't realize, he knows he's going to grow weary. And his plan involves 
a contingency for that, a backup plan. I'm going to need somebody to help me keep my arms up because if I lose access to God's power, there's no way we're winning this battle. I wonder where his focus was. Because I don't know if you've ever done anything like, I don't, this is, I'm really sorry. If, if you kind of roll your eyes at me for this, I apologize. But the first thing that came to my mind is every time you have to change the shower curtain, right? And you get like four rings in and you're like, all right, right? I mean, and maybe you're thinking like, Nick, you are a wimp. Like, come on, right? But it's real. Maybe there's something more manly or more, more difficult that you can consider too. Uh, but keeping your hands up, you know the physical strain of, of doing something, of holding something up for a long time can be very difficult. Moses knew this about himself. He brought friends around to help him because he couldn't depend on Moses. Couldn't even depend on Moses to be the one, the conduit through which the power of God would come to Joshua and the others. So what does he do? The power clearly comes from the Lord, and Aaron and her come in and say, there's a very practical way for us to keep our connection to God. Let's get that rock. Moses, sit down on this rock. I'll get his left arm. Her, you get his right arm. And we're just going to stay here until this is over. And they did. Moses needed other people. He could not do this by himself. Joshua needed other people. He could not do that by himself. Could God have in a moment just gone and got rid of the Amaleks, the Amalekites that is? course why doesn't he because we need this story because this is his plan his plan is for us to be committed to a local congregation of believers in our area that we can hold arms up with there'll be times where you need somebody to hold up your arms and there'll be times where you need to hold somebody else's arms up i hope that you might even be practicing that on sunday morning when this guy's preaching sometimes because my arms get tired spiritually speaking and physically sometimes when I do hard jobs, yes. But was Moses more focused on Joshua's strategy or on interceding? Do you think he had his hands up and he was looking down? He's like, are they done yet? Can you guys make this go a little quicker? I don't think so. I think he was, uh, the immediate focus that he had was probably at the beginning of Aaron and her holding his hands up and going, oh, wow, okay. I think I can do this now, Right? There was the immediate evidence that the Lord was with him. Uh, yeah, there was a battle going on and the Lord was bringing victory. But in the immediate context of what Moses' experience was, Aaron and her were there as a grace in his life. You may not think that every other Christian that you know is the grace of God in your life. Certainly, we ought not go around and say, I am God's gift to you, right? We know better. But the truth is there still. You are God's gift to your brothers and sisters. You are the one that may need to come alongside and lift up the arms and access the power of God. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Yes, that battle, that plan is us against the world largely, right? Spiritual forces, cosmic powers, all those things. But what God provides to us through Christ is all we need for life and godliness. And godliness is the thing that those spiritual forces want to destroy in your life more than anything else. They might get to, the, that, to your godliness through physical circumstances. But you have to guard that. You have to not let 
your, your life be subject to every wind and every wave that comes your way. Spurgeon, in a much better sermon that you could read online from this passage, um, said this great thing. He said, let us fight as if it all depended upon us, but let us look up and know that it all depends on him. You have to do both, Christian. And, and we get it wrong sometimes. We rally under the banner of, I'm going to be the fighting Christian. I'm never going to stop praying. I'm never going to stop reading my Bible. I'm going to go be a, I'm going to, you know, just, I need to just fight because otherwise I might lose it all. And then over here we say, hey, I'm secure in Christ. I'm just going to take a nap here until he comes pick me up. We need to be fighting as if it depended on us. And at the same time, resting, knowing that it all depends on him. That's harder than doing one or the other, isn't it? That's kind of confusing. But you need to recognize what God has called you to do in the body that he's called you to be a part of, the body of Christ. You know, that flag that the uh, Marines at Iwo Jima raised up was not the first flag that was raised in that area. I didn't know this. But the first flag was too small. It was put up. It was meant to be a sign, hey, we've taken this hill. Everybody come here. This is, this is the victory. People couldn't see the flag. If you're raising the flag, but the flag's too small, it's not going to do any good. So that's why we have this amazing photo that I wish I could show you of these men holding up this huge flag, putting it. No way. Did somebody help? Oh, wow. That's that man. Thank you. How about that? Wow, that's cool, isn't it? That's a church flag. Don't even get down here. Was it? That's cool. So you get it, right? And, and Christ is not our little white flag that we raise and say, look at us little Christians, you know, right? If that's the effect we're having on the world, then we need to recognize Christ is a bigger flag than that, right? He's, he's, he's a, a more impacting effect on this world than what so often we let the world around us think he is. He is the one who equips us with weapons of warfare, not of the flesh, but with divine power to destroy these strongholds of spiritual forces against us. Christ is our rallying banner. Look at verse 13. When the war was over, when the battle was over, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Overwhelmed. Because Christ died, he calls us to rally under his banner of his overwhelming victory. Because your sin was not just paid for at the cross for everything up to the point of where you believed. But the overwhelming nature of Christ's victory is that all future sin is dealt with. The ones that you, you wicked, terrible sinner, are going to commit after even tasting of the gracious love of Christ. He loves you that much. Romans 8 tells us that nothing will separate us from the love of God because of what Christ has done for us, because his victory is an overwhelming victory. And, and the Lord said here in the end that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And you can see in 1 Samuel when he does away with Amalek completely. You can see, yeah, it took some time. He decided to work this out over a longer stretch of time from generation to generation. And sometimes the way he works in your life feels like it's taking from generation to generation too. You don't get to come to church as a level four Christian and come out as a level 400 Christian, right? You come in at level four, and I'm hoping that you like maybe 4.5, right? I'm hoping for myself like 4.3, please, something. 
just little steps, but they're meaningful and they're real and they're lasting and they give us hope. They're a down payment of what the Spirit's doing and will bring to completion in Christ. We have a sure hope. And if you ever lose that hope, you need to return to, I hope the title slide was up. Yes, you need to return to the foot of the cross and realize what he paid to get you that victory. It was no small fee. It was his life. It was his blood. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us that we might be redeemed. Because he died, he calls us to rally to him for power to resist the enemy and advance his mission. This was cool. Tim mentioned Zerubbabel in Sunday school today, and this verse came to my mind, Zechariah 4.6. As Zerubbabel was one who was the, the governor at the time of the, uh, after the exile, the Jews are coming back and trying to rebuild, trying to start over. Zerubbabel is part of uh, leading the rebuilding of the temple, and in Zechariah 4.6, um, the message to Zerubbabel is this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You might be a great Christian. You might be a very disciplined, hardworking, faithful, uh, anything. You might, you might attribute anything to yourself in this. You need to let all of that go because it will fail you one of these days. If that is your banner, your own trust in your own power and your own might, but not in the spirit of God who has applied the work of Christ, it's not going to last. It will not last from generation to generation in this battle with Amalek. And yet the love of Christ is shown to us in our captain, Christ our captain, who comes to rally his troops to himself, the good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. Hebrews 2.10 says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Even in your suffering, don't forget to rally under Christ. Go to other brothers and sisters. You might, today, if you're suffering in some context, Find someone that you can rally with under Christ. You know, in, in these battles, in World War II, boy, it's hard watching World War II documentaries and, and stories and things sometimes because you hear about the injuries, you hear about the suffering. But it's so amazing when you see those soldiers who go back into the fray of the battle to get their wounded buddy and bring them back to safety. You might be called to do that today. You might be called to do that tomorrow. You might know a wounded warrior out there, one of your Christian brothers and sisters, who just doesn't quite have enough faith in this moment to pick themselves up, and they might need you to do that. They might need you to be like the friend of the paralyzed man who took him to Jesus and not being able to get to him through the door, went up to the roof, tore the roof out, and dropped him through the roof. Gently. But still. Christ has suffered for us so that in our moment of suffering, we can be reminded our captain also suffered. He did not live an easy life and then call us to just overcome everything on our own. He suffered under the weight of the wrath of God for you so that you wouldn't have to. And yeah, this world is full of troubles, right? It's full, as, as Martin Luther wrote, this world of full of, though devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. That's what we have. That is the power that he's afforded us at the cross because Christ died, that is what we have. What is the purpose? It's the last thing, 14 through 16. Write this as a memorial in a book. Recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do you know that God's word tells us that one day he will make all things right 
He will wipe away every tear from your eyes, every tear over your own sin that you just can't seem to conquer, over every tear over every loss, every pain, every suffering, every struggle. He's going to wipe all those things away and make everything perfect in Christ. He will remove this battle that you're in right now one day. And when it is gone, the amount of time in eternity, which time doesn't even exist in eternity, it's just a pathetic attempt to try to understand it. The weight of eternity far outweighs the weight of what we suffer here today and now. So let's gather together and remind ourselves of that. Because this is indeed Palm Sunday, and you know what happened on Palm Sunday. Jesus rode in humbly on a donkey. And, and this was a picture of the victory of Christ. And everyone knew it. And so they were saying what? As they were waving the palm branches, what's that word? Hosanna. Yeah, excellent. Hosanna. What does that mean? Oh, Lord, save us. They wanted to be saved from Rome. He came to save them from their sin. And that wasn't just a, well, you know, spiritual is more important than physical. Jesus knew that it was tough under Rome, but he knew that Rome was going to be nothing compared to the weight of eternal judgment if that was what they were going to face. We deal with our sin. We deal with temptation because Christ has won a full and complete victory. Um, it, it says that when we are rooted and grounded in his love in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, that strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's rally together with that kind of hope, with that certainty, with all the saints, Paul writes in Ephesians. We rally together under his great love for us at the cross so that we might overcome this world. Because we are overcomers, right? The Bible says that. He's made us to be overcomers. Not by sword, not by our own efforts, not by, by defeating other people, but through love. Through the love of Christ that we might, like Moses was told here, write as a memorial what Christ is. You know, your life is a memorial to what Christ has done. Moses said, write this down so that Joshua would hear it. Joshua was going to need to remember the battle of Amalek for a good while, right? He's got a lot of battles ahead of himself with all sorts of enemies. So the completion of this, the purpose of all of this, is that we might worship Christ and testify to those around us what he has done. Rallying together under Christ in worship, whatever battlefield we're on, even if we're not on the same battlefield all the time. By his spirit. Let's put away our quarreling. Let's put away our testing God, asking him, why did, did you bring us out of Egypt just to destroy us? Did you bring us into the church life just to make my life terrible? No, of course he hasn't. Fix your eyes on Christ and see what he's done for you and live under that banner. You know, uh, last thing before we get to communion, uh, I, I was asking the elders about this this past week and, and some others too, just to kind of understand how would we frame the priorities of rallying together? What would be, as Crosspoint, our priorities in church life? And we agreed that the first one ought to be worship, that what we're doing right now is the main thing that we set out to do as a church, to gather together as God's people. This is a priority. If you're a member at Crosspoint, then this is an expectation. Not to say that you get you know points taken off for every Sunday you miss. That's not what it's about. But if you said, I want a covenant in membership, then, then you're saying, boy, we're saying, all right, we, 
if you're not here regularly, we're going to wonder where you are. We're going to call you and say, boy, is everything all right? This seems odd because worship is something we are meant to weekly participate in together. Secondly, fellowship, which perhaps might amount to a lesser priority with, with lesser points of contact, but should still be there. Because you can't very well rally along with other people that you don't really know. Does that make sense? And lastly, ministry. We should regularly be serving alongside each other, alongside other Christians that we've committed to. Not as a means to, to earn our salvation, but as an evidence of what he's done in us. Worship, fellowship, ministry. In that order, our, our hope is that you would engage with us in worship, participate in the singing and the hearing of his word and, and all the things that go on here. Maybe fellowship, maybe rallying together at, at something like D group or women's Bible study, or it doesn't even have to be in those settings, but do you have a point where you contact and rally together with another believer to some regularity? It probably can't be every week, we get it, but maybe it would be once a month or a couple times every few months where you say, this is a normal connecting point I have with other believers outside of a Sunday worship where we can discuss together, where we can rally together and encourage each other with the truth of our faith in Christ. Well, as we come to communion, it is a way for us to lift up that banner of the victory of Christ. And, and it's, a, it's a special thing. We haven't done communion for a while because of the pandemic and all those kinds of things. But today, um, we're, we're blessed because the elders are going to serve communion to you. Um, it's going to look a little bit different because apparently we just want to do it differently every time we do it, I guess. <laughs> but this Sunday, um, you will be uh, handed a tray for you to pull out a double little plastic cup. Okay, so don't just pull out one, pull out the two of them. The first cup on the bottom has a little cracker in it. The second cup on top has the juice, okay? So when you are, when the plate is in front of you, grab both of those as carefully as you can, like you're pulling out some kind of chemical from a vial or something. I don't know. It's, 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 it's going to be kind of a weird thing. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to, I don't mean to trivialize this, but we're, we're just, it, it's different. So, so be careful with that. But I want to read from 1 Corinthians 11, 23, um, before, uh, as our elders are preparing uh, to uh, serve you. And this kind of goes along with, you know, what I mentioned with the kids earlier, that, that we don't encourage everyone to share in communion. If you're a believer, you don't even have to be a member of Crosspoint, but if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, we encourage you to share in communion with us. But we encourage everyone to examine themselves before they do so, so that they might make sure that they are right with Christ, because this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Listen to this. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or I would say you even testify to the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, here's the warning, listen to this. Whoever eats the bread of, or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine him or herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So uh, this is why, parents, we encourage you to uh, really consider whether, whether your children are, are in Christ, whether they've made a profession that you believe is seems valid that there's fruit in their lives, but also for ourselves. We ought not take this lightly. We should take it seriously. We should really consider what Christ has done for us. 
Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then I'll ask the elders, and I'll join them in sharing uh, the communion elements with us. Father, we thank you, especially on this Sunday, to come back to the table of communion. We ask that your spirit would fill us with a sense of gratitude, would reveal things that we need to deal with before partaking, with confidence, though, Lord, that because Christ's victory is overwhelming, we have an overwhelming reason to come to you in repentance and faith and to trust that you, as we confess our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the blood of Christ. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. We'll share the elements and we'll ask that you hold on to them until everyone is served and then we'll share together. partake together as we celebrate communion we celebrate the body of christ first a little oyster cracker something you would put in your soup something normal to find in your cupboard this is what christ became for you he became somebody who would have walked through the streets walked uh, from house to house talking with people doing normal human things people wouldn't have seen a glowing aura around jesus and thought necessarily that he was something special this is what he became for you church humbled himself, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. And his body was broken so that yours might be made whole. Let's partake of the cracker together. And of course, perhaps the more intense picture in the crucifixion is the spilling of Christ's blood for us, right? The shedding of Christ's blood on our behalf that purifies us this thing that you wouldn't expect to be a cleaning agent has clean cleansed our soul from our sin. The penalty of sin is gone. The power of sin is weakening in our lives as we walk with Christ more and more. And one day when we are with him, the presence of sin itself will be gone entirely. 
thank the Lord for that. Let's partake together and then we'll pray. My Father, we thank you for the body and blood of Christ. We thank you for this picture that we get to participate in. It carries no magical power, but it shows us the power that you have used to bring us victory, to be our banner. We might rally under you because of what Christ has done. We thank you for the hope that we have. We pray that you would draw us ever near to you. You might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.